So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And, uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. Welcome to season two of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. In these episodes, we share international stories about the pandemic around the world, what it looks like in everyday lives, as well as what it looks like from the eyes of researchers and professionals who work on controlling the pandemic. This podcast is designed for information to be translatable from epidemiologists, emergency medical professionals, and those who do work on the front lines and what it looks like in everyday family culture on planet Earth during this historic moment. We are at a crucial time in public health with the global crises of the pandemic in addition to climate change. This is our moment as public health professionals, academics, and entrepreneurs to work together collectively to consider solutions and perceive creative ways to work through these major challenges, these wicked problems that we're facing around the world. I encourage you to visit us at publichealthpodcasters.com to learn more about how podcasting can be leveraged to improve public health, health equity, and to support communities building diverse infrastructure in community, global, and environmental health. Again, visit us at publichealthpodcasters.com and learn more about our membership opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are here to talk about vaccine disinformation and the different um, beliefs and things people are hearing around the world, particularly Latin America today. And so I'm really excited to share uh, this story with you, this documentary information with you. We are speaking to Leah Varjak and she is a producer at Vice News. She's gonna be sharing with us some of the findings that she saw as she was recording her documentary in Latin America about COVID disinformation. She saw some really interesting things and I just really look forward to this conversation. Welcome, Leah. Thanks so much, April. Thanks for uh, your interest and um, reaching out to us on Twitter. (laughs) Thank you. This is just really exciting to speak to someone um, working with Vice News. We love Vice, uh, especially 
just some of the really fun content that's out there that we've been watching over the years. Um, please tell us a little bit more about yourself and tell us about this journey into Latin America that you saw. Yeah, uh, so I'm a journalist. I've been uh, working in video journalism my whole uh, journalism career, and I've been at Vice for uh, a year and a half. Um, I joined just before the pandemic started. Um, and uh, in, I guess, January of this year, I saw an article about community health workers that uh, were kind of going into community spaces, Latina, it was specifically Latina community health workers going into uh, neighborhoods in Chicago that were um, predominantly Latino and talking to people about the vaccine. This was just as the vaccine was kind of getting started to roll out. And there was a lot of rumors circulating and um, we were people were noticing that um, the Latino community wasn't getting vaccinated um, as much, uh, a lot of, the essential worker population uh, were Latino. Um, so there was kind of like a lag in people getting vaccinated. And so these community health workers were going out and trying to convince people in community spaces. Um, and so I thought that that was an interesting and visual way to like look into um, disinformation. It's a topic I've been interested in for a few years, um, but it's always a difficult one to do to to do a piece on in video because it's like it happens online and um, it's not necessarily you know it happens in these virtual spaces it's not necessarily like an action that you can film so I was like oh this is like a good visual way to maybe get at the disinformation that we're seeing uh, in around COVID and the vaccine um, so initially you know proposed it as a small project focusing on community health workers and the, the work that they're doing. Um, and then it kind of ballooned uh, with more reporting into like looking at who is putting out this content, who is making the disinformation. Um, and we kind of found the source of that to be coming from a variety of places, but Latin America obviously being one of the uh, main <laughs> places of uh, being a Spanish speaking continent. Uh, and so we uh, decided to kind of tell the full story of disinformation in Spanish as it relates to COVID, um, starting from like where it originates um, to like how it gets consumed and, and where it ends up and the impact that it ends up having on uh, Latino communities uh, everywhere. That um, is so interesting yeah. because just I, I agree with you just as we look at misinformation or disinformation it's almost like an online conversation we're hearing about Facebook we're hearing about Twitter and the different things people are seeing and hearing online but then for you to be able to actually see it in action wow yeah 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 um it was surprising to me kind of well it, it was surprising at first and then I was like oh this makes sense I mean the anti-vax movement has gotten a huge uh, boost during the pandemic and especially during the rollout of the vaccines. Um, and during COVID, there was so much uncertainty in the beginning, right? Nobody knew how this was transmitted, um, you know, where there was just so much uncertainty and people who um, were anti-medical establishment or, you know, uh, peddling these kinds of miracle fake cures 
kind of got in, used the, the opportunity of this uncertainty to uh, kind of wreak havoc and make things much worse. So uh, yeah, it was kind of the perfect storm for, for uh, misinformation to really take off um, because of all that uncertainty at the, at the very beginning. And then also the mixed messaging that like the public health institutions were putting out and then the governments were putting out. Um, remember like people were told not to wear masks at some point early on. And then it was like, actually, no, that is the main tool of um, stopping the spread. So that kind of mixed messaging um, really benefited the, uh, the anti-maskers and, and, and et cetera, so. Not to mention the reopenings and then the closing back up right. these waves that exactly. are preventable. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, it's totally normal that there was so much uncertainty because of, but, but yeah, I guess, yeah, the, the a lot of people don't have scientific training and thinking, so um, it's a lot easier to uh, believe like what your friend says or what you see online, um, you know, so. Even out of curiosity, I'm just really curious to know if you had um, observed any kind of religious angles to this in Latin America? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, that's so interesting that you bring that up because we don't really cover that in the documentary that much. I'm wondering what, what um, what made you bring bring up religion? Oh, just because it's it's a huge uh, cultural marker. I think in in the Latinx community, when I I'm not fluent in Spanish, but when I do speak Spanish or I hear it, it's always two topics. It is food <laughs> and church. Got it. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, this is something that we um, almost went down the road of. of looking into that for the piece, but we couldn't find anyone that would let us film. So we didn't. Um, but yeah, there is a huge, in evangelical churches, there was a, a big problem of uh, preachers calling the vaccine the mark of the beast um, and, you know, encouraging their uh, congregations not to get vaccinated, doubting all these things, uh, of, you know, the scientific consensus and Fauci, all this stuff. There was just a lot of overlap with conspiracy theories. Um, and the mark of the beast was like a narrative that was repeated time and time again in different churches across the country, um, across Latin America too. Um, and that was a very, very damaging narrative. And a lot of people, you know, they go to church every week. Uh, they're not, or more than that, they're not, you know, necessarily listening to the press conferences by the uh, health leaders and the president and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, they're going to believe their uh, faith leader. Uh, it's just such a uh, community bond and like trustworthy person in someone's life. Um, if if faith is a big part of someone's life, so uh, so yeah, that was very damaging to see like uh, faith leaders spreading these really damaging disinformation narratives about COVID and the vaccine. That was very alarming. <laughs> um, right. Also about like Bill Gates having a chip, you know, the, the microchip theory that was also propagated by evangelical church leaders. Um, so yeah, that there definitely was a big, that was a big reason why uh, the Latinx community was uh, like believing a lot of the rumors. Mm -hmm. What's the name of your documentary? 
Um, it's called Disinfodemic okay. and it's available on YouTube Great. in Spanish and English. There's, uh, there's uh, the English version on the Vice News YouTube channel and uh, the Spanish version is on the Vice and Espanol YouTube channel. It was important to us to make sure that like it was fully understandable by people who only speak Spanish. What was like, the most striking things that you saw when you were working on this? Wow. Um, yeah, there are many things. Um, the volume of, of content being made and posted every day um, and the kind of how much that content was outpacing the efforts from the platforms to um, clamp down on it and, and address it and, and make sure it didn't spread. Um, I mean, it, it just feels like they set themselves up to fail <laughs> in a way. Um, right, so, it's almost like one side is more passive and one side's more proactive. In some yeah, way. and like oh. also the kind of savvy that the disinformation creators have, you know, they were able to circumvent moderation very easily um, wow. by using encrypted messaging platforms that allow for large groups. You know, you can do large groups on WhatsApp. Um, and uh, also, you know, like, for example, videos that were fact-checked by Facebook on Facebook, the platform, when they were shared on Messenger, they weren't, uh, they were still like viewable. So if you shared a video that was fact-checked that said like false video, on if you shared that video on Facebook Messenger, it didn't appear like that on the Facebook Messenger platform. So you didn't actually have that labeling. So wow. I don't know if that's a glitch on the Facebook's end, if they, if some sort of oversight, but you know, that's definitely a, a huge gap. And when we spoke to our um, anti-vax character, who, uh, his name is Rosario, she reasons why she didn't want to get vaccinated against COVID was because of things she was receiving specifically on Facebook Messenger. This, the, also how a lot of the disinformation creators were able to like in their posting change the spelling, just even the simple thing as changing the spelling, the word vaccine, um, you know, adding a number instead instead of like the letter or something, um, like would would make it so that the algorithm that is supposed to catch misinformation wasn't catching that stuff, so it was able to be spread um, very easily. So seeing that was just a little bit disheartening because there's just so much volume of of disinformation being created and. Um, there's thousands of ways to circumvent the algorithm. Wow, it was um, just that easy. My goodness. Yeah, exactly. So could um, you and also what was interesting was, oh, sorry, just kind of how the network, um, the main network uh, called Doctors for Truth, that uh, was the Spanish language disinformation um, spreader. Wow. Uh, just seeing kind of how it traveled around the world and how it, it was created in Spain. And then um, because Argentina has the largest Spanish diaspora in Latin America, uh, there was a lot of, like it, it, the first chapter of Doctors for Truth, which was founded in Spain, the first chapter in Latin America was in Argentina. And from there, it grew to all these other countries. Um, and like, it was, at first it was felt random that it was Argentina and like, why were we hearing about Argentina in the US? There's not that big of an Argentine diaspora in the US, but, um, but you know, it's the internet, things travel. <laughs> so wow. seeing the geography of that was 
was interesting. So these doctors for truth, are they actual MDs? Are they doctors in something? That's a really good question. Um, I think, uh, you know, dishearteningly, there are some actual physicians that are a part of it, but um, a lot of the figures in Doctors for Truth either used to be doctors and lost their medical license um, because of malpractice or because of something else. Um, and they kind of pose as doctors. Um, you know, th there's this other network called Comusad, which is, um, stands for Coalición Mundial de Salud y Vida, uh, the Global Coalition for Health and Life. Um, they all kind of wear lab coats um, in their presentation of themselves. And it's difficult to distinguish who is a real doctor by training and who is not. Um, but there's definitely a big mix of people. There's a lot of people who are fakes, complete fakes, right? And then say that they're doctors and they're not. There are people who are and are, I think, have gone down a rabbit hole, like anyone might fall for a conspiracy theory um, or some type of cult. <laughs> um, so there's like some some real real doctors, and then there's a lot of um, natural alternative homeopaths, healer type people who are like coming at it from the like the left wing, I would say, side of things, more of the new age um, hippie type of ideology uh, that is just like distrustful of the establishment um, in the in that way. Um, so there's those people who uh, are, you know, consider themselves like health healers people. Um, and then there's also uh, people who absolutely are not healers <laughs> or doctors of any sort. Um, and there's a, a big overlap with um, far right ideology. Um, and in, Argent in the case of Argentina, in the chapter there, there's like, one of the main figures of Doctors for Truth is this woman named Chinda Brandolino, and she is a far-right, like, neo-Nazi type of figure um, who did a lot of advocate, advocating against the um, law for abortion in Argentina, which was, like, a huge um, moment in that country's history. Um, she, it was, like, a, a, just a really big thing in Argentina and she was like very you know part of the like Catholic uh, anti-abortion um, movement but also has some like very shady far-right um, ties and, and ideologies um, so there's like a very creepy Venn diagram right it's almost <laughs> um, a circle on. yeah yeah connection. there's like the hippies there's the Nazis there's like they like convert just the, yeah there's just the yeah yeah Wow. Okay. So uh, you actually answered my question that I was going to ask you kind of um, about the countries that you visited or how this kind of uh, took place. So you mentioned mm -hmm. that some of it originated in Spain and then some of it uh, originated or connected onward into uh, Argentina. Uh, so during your documentary, where did you go? And um, mm -hmm. did you we see actually, oh. yeah, we actually didn't go uh, to Argentina. We uh, weren't able to go because of the lockdown restrictions. Um, when we wanted to go, it was Argentina was going through its like fourth COVID wave and it was the worst one yet. 
Um, and so the country put down a very severe restriction and like there was basically no, uh, we couldn't like get into the country. So we hired um, a local crew, um, a producer and, and uh, cinematographers there that like filmed the scenes that we uh, wanted to film with our with our Dr. Fatru's character, um, who is uh, the, the disinformer um, in the piece. Uh, so yeah, we actually just went to uh, California for uh, the filming, like our team, the Vice News team, um, we filmed with the community health worker of Libres Campesinas in um, the Central Valley. Uh, in Kern County, and uh, we filmed with our anti-vaxxer character there as well. Um, and we also filmed an interview with Tony Cardenas, uh, the lawmaker there. But yeah, we didn't actually go to, uh, for this documentary, we didn't go to Latin America. Um, I did want to say something though, back to like the question about the geography. There's also a lot of content um, that is uh, translated from English into Spanish. So a lot of the disinformation relating to COVID that is like in Spanish um, isn't just coming from Spain and Argentina and like traveling that way. That's like one, one uh, route, but um, a lot of it is actually English content that's translated into Spanish. And there's um, like entire websites dedicated to translating English anti-vax content into Spanish and um, distributing it, diffusing it everywhere. They like have this whole like subtitling operation. Uh, it's very disturbing how kind of sophisticated it is, um, and and like intentional, you know. Um, and I've like was monitoring these groups on Telegram um, to kind of stay up to date because a lot of the platforms, you know, yes, a lot of the disinformers are circumventing the, the mainstream social media platforms quite well, but um, since they're being targeted, you know their content is being trying, like the platforms are trying to like clamp down on that. They migrated a lot of them to Telegram, which uh, doesn't have a disinformation policy and like basically is impossible to uh, monitor and moderate um, because posts are not public and like, it's just, you know, it's a messaging uh, platform. So I was on in all these Telegram groups and um, a lot of the content that was being shared in those, these like Doctor for Truth Argentina groups, et cetera, were coming from like QAnon Telegram channels that were like America. And like all the memes were like Biden or Obama, like, you know, a lot of QAnon stuff, uh, Deep State, Hillary Clinton, Bill Gates, like all the kind of classic QAnon theories that and, like were being shared with these groups uh, in English or translated into Spanish. So that kind of gave a little window into like how what's being, all the misinformation being created in English is like very much getting through uh, this to the Spanish speaking world as well. So for the most part, if, especially if we're thinking about like the English translation, the misinformation or the disinformation is very common to what we would hear here, kind of like the microchipping, the sure. um, mark of the beast and yeah. uh, things like that, um, that the technology has some kind of like hidden motive. Mm -hmm. um, what else did you hear out there like in, from the Spanish, anything that was unusual? I've heard so, someone else mentioned that someone said like you would grow a third head or a third limb, <laughs> third limb or, or whatever. <laughs> um, there is so much, so many <laughs> theories. Um, 
you know, a lot of it about like masks being um, dangerous, you know, how you're like breathing in CO2 or something, um, how a lot of it uh, also, I mean, I guess something that's specific to the Spanish language world, which is the, which became the subject of its own short documentary that we released a couple of days ago. Um, and that we actually did go to South America for. Uh, uh, it was about chlorine dioxide, and um, which is a form of industrial bleach. And that was very unique, I felt, to uh, what was going on in Latin America that I didn't see as much happening here. Um, it was happening here still. Like there are there are people in the in the United States that are giving bleach to people, or like uh, you know, and, and it goes back to way beyond before the pandemic even happened. Um, but like the, the level of like embracing of that uh, that happened in Latin America was very alarming. Um, so yeah, that, that was pretty shocking. And we actually did go to Bolivia for that piece. Um, and we because Bolivia legalized it as a treatment for COVID as an alternative uh, medicine, um, which was pretty bonkers. <laughs> wow. uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of the equivalent here of like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which became a huge news story just a couple of weeks ago. Um, but ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are actual medicines. Like they are actual real medicines that are used maybe, in humans. Maybe for horses, maybe. Right. The ivermectin was being for like that was being bought was for horses. But there is ivermectin that is used in, you know, for humans too. So like and hydroxychloroquine is used to cure malaria. So like these are actual real things that are medical. Um, so you know, which makes it powerful um it's like the kernel of truth that makes disinformation so powerful um is like well ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are real medicines but chlorine dioxide is not a medicine by any means it is not an approved medication it is not there's no proof or evidence that has any medical properties at all um, and if anything you know the fda warns that it's potentially deadly very dangerous to consume it's basically like drinking bleach. Um, so it was pretty shocking to see that that was getting such a stamp of approval and like legitimacy um, in a country by like the health ministry, by the government. Uh, Industry. Yeah, that was just very mind boggling. And there's, you know, a bunch of reasons for why Bolivia in particular, it took off. Um, like, they already have in Bolivia a very strong um, tradition of alternative medicine. And like, you know, Western medicine is not viewed as like necessarily uh, always good. There was a campaign um, to provide birth control to people to reduce maternal mortality in the sixties. And uh, I believe it was the Peace Corps um, but, and, and in Peace Corps, in uh, U.S. official documents, it was actually, they were writing that it was to reduce the size of the world population, which sounds pretty dystopian, 
Um, but basically, you know, people went in, volunteers went in and gave contraceptives to people. Uh, one thing I read, one, and I don't know if it's a rumor, it was in an academic article um, about that was kind of researching what happened in these uh, villages. Um, some, you know, women were saying that they had been, uh, IUDs had been inserted into their bodies, um, which, you know, is not anything to sterilize someone, but it's still like a pretty invasive um, contraceptive that, you know, you would want the person to consent to having. Um, so anyway, that, like that history uh, helped contribute to a distrust in the Western medicine, like establishment, I guess, um, in Bolivia. And there's just been skepticism. There's also, you know, um, in Bolivian politics, always been like a very uh, strong, like anti-imperialist type of sensibility. So there's, you know, Western medicine and is not by any means viewed as like, what is the, you know, truth or whatever. So, um, and there's like, you know, good legit reasons for that. And traditional medicine also has, you know, many great uh, and very real like proof that it works. So there's already that kind of distrust that exists. And on top of that, like a very strong tradi traditional medicine and alternative uh, tradition there. So that kind of laid the foundation for why people might believe in chlorine dioxide. Um, and then you sprinkle on, you know, some convincing misinformers and like the result is, and like also just desperation, like there was no vaccines, there were no medicines um, at first. And like it's poor country, people were dying, like, you know, let's try, let's try things out. People were saying that chlorine dioxide works, like let's try it. Um, and it's a very damaging, damaging thing. Like chlorine dioxide is not something that should be consumed um, by humans. So uh, yeah, that was, that was probably the most shocking thing that I saw and um, so much so that we decided to focus an entire piece on it. So, so I mean, I have two questions. I'm trying to think about the sequence in which I wanna ask these questions. Sure. Um, one of the questions is like, when you first got hired, advice before the pandemic what did you think you were going to be working on and what actually happened right so I'm just so curious to think to hear about what you were planning to work on in terms of documentaries and then I guess my other question would be more of like what can we do about this uh -huh. as public health professionals yeah um that's that's so funny I actually haven't even thought about that first question um wow like <laughs> I don't even know. I was uh, I was hoping to cover things in Latin America. So um, that was a goal of mine already. I was hoping to do reporting in Latin America anyway. Um, I my first piece that I did for Vice was about um, about uh, opioids uh, in Philadelphia. So I mean, honestly, I was a general. I mean, I'm kind of a generalist. I don't have a beat. Um, so it could have been, I didn't have like a plan for like what exactly I wanted to focus on. I was hoping to do some climate stuff, um, but it was a pretty wide open door. Um, 
and and then the pandemic happened and it's just been you know the main the main story um and I didn't, you know, before I was at Vice, I was at the New York Times opinion video section, and we made a documentary about disinformation called Operation Infection, uh, which delves into like how it delves more into like the definition of disinformation and, and how it works and the like uh, the, the disinformation campaigns by the Russian government and like how the U.S. government was like very how it's been how it's being used as a weapon very deliberately um by governments um and how the u.s like used to have a program to combat it and now like abandoned it um <laughs> so that was like my i had been introduced to disinformation already um but i hadn't really planned to uh continue like looking into that but it became such a important part of the story of how the pandemic was evolving. Like it is, has evolved the way that it has because of mis and disinformation. Right. And, and like in Latin America too, like, I mean, everywhere, but seeing like how an entire continent's like curve was being affected by the anti-vax movement that really has popped off in Latin America because of the pandemic. It really wasn't much of a thing before. Um, that was that was pretty shocking so yeah um in terms of your second question what can we do about mis and disinformation um you know i think that in the documentary our expert source who's uh, jaime longoria from first draft news uh which is a organization that kind of monitors disinformation um he puts it really well. He says, you know, we can preach all we want about educating people about media literacy and like, you know, don't believe everything you read on the internet. We hear that all the time. Don't believe what your aunt, you know, grandma, whatever says, sends um, to you, like think twice, whatever, uh, read multiple sources. Like we can preach all you want about media literacy, but he compares it to the uh, fossil fuel industry. Like we're told as consumers that we need to recycle, that, that climate change is you know, dependent upon our individual actions. And like to a certain extent, yes, like it helps to recycle and like compost and all those things. And like, those are all positive steps that will be helpful. But at the end of the day, climate change is not going to, to be slowed down if we all just recycle and nothing else changes, right? Like it's big corporations polluting the ecosystems. Um, and until that is addressed and like corporations do things differently until the governments regulate them, like it's not going to get better. And it's the same thing with the information ecosystem. Like there are giant tech companies that are time and again, putting their profit and gains over the safety of people and our minds. And, uh, and until there is the government steps in to somehow, you know, whether that's through lawmaking, like creating a different, you know, a committee to oversee these tech giants, whatever it's going to be, the government, definitely the, Cong the U.S. Congress has not done enough and could have, you know, started thinking about this much sooner. Um, they've introduced dozens of bills for the past, you know, 
seven years at least, uh, time and again, they've had the executives testify in front of Congress so many times. And they're always you know, agitating their arms, being like, oh my God, this is bad. And their knowledge is, is like appalling, you know, like their own tech savviness is just very sad. <laughs> um, and, and like, no wonder they haven't gotten their shit together. Sorry. <laughs> um, but, but like, there could be more that the government is doing to protect consumers from like these corporations polluting the information ecosystem. And so, yes, we can be more media literate. That's a good thing, but also like it needs to come from the top. And in the meantime, like while we wait for action from the top and, you know, not just wait, but like activate, um, tell your lawmakers what you want to see, write to them, call them, whatever, um, like efforts like the ones that we documented in the film of um, Lires Campesinas and other community health worker efforts that are going door to door trying to educate people and kind of counter in real time the narratives uh, that misinformation is spreading. Um, like that's the best way that we have because it's like trusted community members talking to their community members and like that seems to be the most effective way to uh, change people's minds um if they are open to to being uh educated and if they're receptive to that but um that that seems to be you know investing in community health workers i would say is like definitely a good thing um and and a good thing not just for you know public health and primary health care and preventative health care and all that but also for like information um uh yeah Thank you. That's so information, so important. This information is so important. And I like what you mentioned about kind of like the top down is really what is going to make major change, um, it, most powerful change, but then also this role that the community has to, uh, to trust one another and to share information. And that's an important start as well. And so um, I think our work as public health professionals is kind of trying to do a little bit of both if we can. So mm -hmm. you know, if we have roles in leadership in public health, being able to do it that way and impacting policy, but then also we do have community health workers in this field um, and also just as individuals and citizens being able to, even as podcasters, being able mm -hmm. to communicate correct information and share that is our, our goal as well. So thank you so much for kind of um, reinforcing that with us, <laughs> that that's kind of what we're also hoping to do as well. And yeah. so thank you. What would you like the world to know during this time? Oh, wow. Um, I think just, you know, don't inject bleach. Uh, don't drink bleach. <laughs> um, trust like public health institutions and like if people are telling, you know, look at the numbers and pay attention to facts. I don't know, it's really hard because there's like different realities. People are operating in totally different sets of realities. And I don't know um, how to fix that. Uh, I think that has a lot to do with how social media is configured. Um, and it's, you know, 
above my pay grade. <laughs> like, I just mean like, it's like, that's like a whole other issue, right? Like, so yeah, I, I think it's just bridging the different realities that people are living in is like the greatest challenge uh, for all types of issues, right? Like for climate change too, for dealing with this pandemic. Um, and that's like really a social media created problem. How can people learn more about your work? How can they find you on speaking of social media? How can we connect? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for spreading the word about our documentary and for your interest. Um, and I hope people watch it and share it. Um, it's kind of ironic that, you know, we depend on social media for this to be spread. And actually, um, this was very interesting in the publishing of our piece on YouTube. They actually which in part deals with how YouTube has not done a good job of addressing disinformation on their platform. They, we had to send it to YouTube because our piece deals with COVID disinformation. We had to send it to them for approval and to make sure that it wasn't going to get caught by their algorithm. And um, they age restricted it. And so you have to have an account to, and sign in before you can view it. Um, and they said that it was because of graphic content, which there's a protest scene in the piece, but it's not graphic by any by any means. There's no bloody nothing. So um, it was pretty shocking to us that it was restricted like that. Um, and we were like, well, maybe you know, maybe they <laughs> they're trying to not have criticism. I don't know, um, but but yeah, it's it's weird that like reporting on the COVID disinformation stuff is getting like more like attention by these companies. Than more screening. The, yeah, more screening than the like disinformation that they're allow, allowing to run rampant. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, what was your question? I'm not answering. Uh, how can we just connect with you and maybe- Oh, connect with me. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, you can follow me. Um, my It's like my handle is just my full name, Leibar Jacques on uh, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I would say followed by Snooze on YouTube. Um, we put out a lot of videos, documentaries um, every day, and they're all like deeply reported and made by a team of passionate uh, young journalists who are very talented. So, you know, follow us, watch us.